0: Yes, you're listening to Nightlight. Chris Glynn here with the latest podcast. David Kiran is my guest once again on the program. I always learn so much from the fresh insights and perspectives that David brings to often very well-known Bible stories, like the one that he's chosen for today, the story of Naaman and Elisha. Nightlight
1: Insights Thank you so much, Chris. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you having me here on the show. It's always a pleasure to interact with you and with your listeners. I'm very grateful for the opportunity.
0: You're so welcome.
1: And yeah, I also like digging into some of these well-known stories and trying to actually get down to the bottom and see if there's any new truths for us in there. This isn't a story that I've been thinking about recently. It's one that I've been enjoying. And so if you don't mind reading for me, Chris, if you can turn sure. to the book of 2 Kings and read chapter 5, beginning with verse 1.
0: Now, Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper.
1: Okay, perfect. The word Naaman in this particular translation comes from the Hebrew word Naim. And the word Naim basically means to be beautiful, to be pleasant, and to be delightful. And so his name, as we know in the Bible and in the ancient uh, Hebrew texts, They wouldn't give a name unless the name had something to do with their characteristics or something that they were going to do. So names have a big importance and carry a lot of weight in the ancient world and especially in ancient Hebrew writings. So we have this guy. His name is Naaman. His name means that he's very delightful. He's pleasant. He's well-formed. He's beautiful. It says here that he is a very powerful man. He's second in command to the king of Syria. And at this time, the Assyrian Empire was on the ascendancy. It was a great power in the world at that time. This is during the many wars that they had with the kingdom of Egypt, which Israel unfortunately got stuck in the middle of a couple of times, which if you read the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles, you'll come across these stories where there is these wars that take place and Israel generally gets caught in the middle. That's right. And so at this time... Syria is on the ascendancy, and a lot of that has to do with this man, Naaman. He's a very intelligent man, he's a very astute man, he's a very tactical general, and he's pretty much a military genius because he's winning battles left, right, and center. He's a national hero, he's someone that people look up to, he's someone that people admire, he's someone that when they look at him, they say, This guy is just. Like, he's so powerful and so strong and so beautiful and so wonderful. I mean, just picture, like, one of these really powerful politicians, very, very well-spoken at the same time, very good-looking, very charismatic. He has the adoration of everybody. He's the national hero. They are throwing festivals in his name, and there's so many things going on around him. Life is made for this guy. Right. But there's a very interesting insert... At the end of the verses we just read it says that he was very good he was powerful he had won these victories everyone appreciated him he was good looking but he was a leper and that word but is actually emphasized in the hebrew because that is put there as a contrast to everything else right so it's like on the outside he was very powerful on the outside he was a great orator on the outside. He was a military genius on the outside. He was a great strategian who had won many wars on the outside. He was everything that everyone ever wanted, but on the inside, he was a leper unseen to everyone else. He was sick, right? I think the thing that kind of speaks to me the most about that is No matter who a person is, no matter how wonderful they seem on the outside, no matter how many things they have going for them, no matter how many things stand out and how we look at them, admire them, every single person is going through something unseen. Very true. Nobody's life is perfect. No matter how good it looks on the outside, everyone is fighting some battle that you don't know anything about. Everyone is dealing with their own personal demons in some way. I think the most amazing thing that, that, spe- that what speaks to me about this is that, look, everyone really needs God. That's right. Everyone really needs Jesus. You know, sometimes you look at people and you're like, well, they have so much, they're so rich, they're so powerful, they're so talented, they're so desired, they're so sought after. What could they possibly need? But what you don't realize is that everyone is fighting a hidden battle. Right. Everyone is dealing with something that is not there. To be seen by the outside eye. Yes, and even this guy, who is the most second most powerful man in the world, the most successful military leader of that time, who is very sought after, who is very very good looking, has everything going for him, is sick, and needs help, and it's help that he can't seem to get from where he is. He something that he he had all the wealth available to him, he couldn't get the cure. Right. He had all the power and prestige available to him. He couldn't get the cure what he needed was something that was greater and powerful than what he currently knew something greater than his wealth something greater than his position something greater than his status something greater than what he currently could afford that's right and that was only to be found in yahweh the god of israel yes And so when you look at people with all their power and all their wealth and all their things, you're like, what could they possibly need? What could we possibly give them? Give them God. Amen. Give them Jesus because he can solve their hidden problems. Only he can fix their hidden needs. Only he can can see into their hearts and see the places where they are hurting, see the places where they are broken, see the places where they are struggling. And they might've tried to get all the help that they could get. They might've tried all the avenues that they could use. They might've tried everything that money could buy and everything that power could have given them. They need something greater than that. Yes. They need the God of the universe, which is what we have to offer. And so I believe that's an encouragement for each and every one of us. You don't know what to give people, give them God. Nightline. Chris, if you can read us the next verse.
0: And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife.
1: So this was a very common practice in the ancient world. It was something that is still unfortunately practiced in some parts of the world today, but this is a very, very ancient and a very horrible practice, and thank God that uh, human rights and all have caught up with it. But in those days, there were very, very strong beliefs that the weak were meant to serve the strong. And these were reinforced by the various religions that were there around that time, especially the pagan religions, where it was always the wars of the gods and the stronger gods conquered the weaker gods, and the weaker gods were made to serve the wills of the stronger gods. And so it kind of became this form of understanding that the strong would always rule the weak. In those days, they would go out, and you would fight against your enemy. And if you conquered your enemy, you would then enslave your enemy. And the enemy, who was obviously weaker than you, and had been conquered by you was made to serve the strong and so it's a very common practice we see all the way throughout the various cultures of the world right. and at various times in history and at this point it seems that this has happened in the story the army of the assyrians had gone out on a raiding mission into the land of israel this wasn't an all-out war But this was like a raiding mission. So you're like, okay, we want to get a bit more extra wealth. We need a bit more extra manpower for certain projects. Go send out an army and go into the land of Israel and go raid the farms. Go raid the villages. Go raid the areas around. Bring what food you can find and bring what money you can find. And if you pick up any people along the way, bring them also and we'll use them to be slaves. Right. It's on one of these raids that they pick up this young Israelite girl. According to the history that has been passed down and the tradition of this story, she would have been about probably five years old around the time that she was captured. So just imagine this, this five-year-old girl has been kidnapped, taken away and brought to serve in the house of one of the most powerful people of the land. And she's had her freedom taken away from her. She's had her will taken away from her. And now she's been made to wait upon the desires of these powerful people who have obtained her. Either Naaman was involved with the mission, the raiding party, but judging from his position in the army, I don't think he would have actually been involved in one of these raiding missions. More likely, because he was the commander, he got first pick of what came through. She would have come to him as a portion of what they had captured on their mission. And so she was made to wait in their house. And most likely she was taking care of his wife and looking after her needs. So let's read the next verse.
0: And she said unto her mistress, would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy.
1: Okay, so look at this. Worst possible thing. That could have happened to this little girl. She's taken away from her family. She's taken away from her land, taken away from her history, taken away from her culture. She's lost all hope of life. She ends up in this foreign place to serve the will of foreign rulers. And God is able to use her to turn the heart of the wife of the second most powerful man in the world at that time. God is able to use her in the middle of, of these deep and dark circumstances to be an absolute crucial player in the salvation of Naaman. Wow! And so I think this kind of harkens back to the story of Joseph, who himself was sold into slavery, who ended up in the land of Egypt, who ended up working in the house of Potiphar, and then through no fault of his own ended up in prison and went through about 12 years of prison there and before he ended up right hand to pharaoh and saved not only the land of egypt but the surrounding lands around from famine and when his brothers come to meet him and he encounters them they're afraid of him because they're worried he's going to take retribution that's right for what they've done to him and what does he say he says what you meant for evil god used for good. He doesn't say that what you guys did was right, so it's okay. You get, a, you get a free pass. He says, no, what you guys did was wrong. It was wrong for you to sell me into slavery. It was wrong for you to take profit off of me like that. It was wrong for you to steal my hopes and steal my dreams and to you know, tear me away from my family and put me through everything that I went through. But you know what? God is greater than that. He's greater than all the evils in this world, that's right, he is greater than all the worst things that humankind can do. He is greater than any evil that can be done. You meant it for evil, and it was evil, but still, even that could not destroy God's plan because what you meant for evil, God used for good. So, was it a good thing that this girl got captured? No, it was a horrible thing. It was a terrible thing. There is no condoning of the act of kidnapping of this poor, innocent child here. They're not saying that, oh, it was a great thing that that happened. No, it was a terrible, terrible thing. The Bible has a very accurate viewpoint on the evils that go on in this world. The Bible is not ashamed like some other of the books out there the Bible is not ashamed at highlighting just the incredible evil that mankind is capable of in fact that's the entire story of the Bible is how mankind left to their own devices does ridiculous things and how when we decide that we want to be the masters of this world and when we decide not to take God's definition of good and evil but instead decide that we're going to define what good and evil is on our own terms and we take our wonderful ability to create and our wonderful ability to enact our will in this world and we use it for our own selfish purposes, we can do severe damage. We can do terrible things to this world and the Bible does not shy away from highlighting the terrible, terrible, terrible things that people are capable of doing. That's right but there's an underlying story through that all. This is still God's world. God is still on the throne and he, can still redeem, even in the worst thing that humans can do, God can still bring some good out of it. Yes. Does it justify the evil things that they do? No. Does it mean that those who commit the evil get away scot free? No. The Bible says very clearly that every single person has to give an account before the righteous throne of God one day for every single act that they have done wrong. The Bible is very clear that there is severe punishment that awaits those who hurt the innocent for their own selfish gain. But God, in his amazing and wonderful sovereignty, can use even the worst of circumstances to work for his good. He promises in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28, when he says, all things work together for good to them who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. He can work everything out. And so in this circumstance, the worst possible circumstance that could happen to this little girl, he uses it in an incredible way and uses this girl as the catalyst for a massive change that would sweep over the land of Assyria, God. a massive change that would happen in the household of Naaman. Doesn't start from the top. Doesn't start from this great and powerful man. It starts from an insignificant child who had no business being there in the first place. And that's the amazing, redeeming power of God present throughout all the pages of scripture, how he can take the worst situations and bring out the best from it. Yes. How he can take the most insignificant things and turn them into the pivots upon which some of the greatest things of this world turn. Shine bright in the dark night. You're listening to Nightlight. Let's keep going. Chris, you read the next couple of verses for us.
0: And one went in and told his lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel.
1: So just pause that for a second. And this is something also to keep in mind. Why on earth would Naaman listen to the words of a child who was a servant? Why? Why would he even pay any attention to that? There's something here that has caused him to pay attention to it. And a lot of the biblical commentators have said that there is another parallel here between this story and the story of Joseph. What caused Joseph to be respected by Potiphar? What caused Joseph to find the favor of the prison keeper? What was it that caused Joseph to find the favor of Pharaoh? It was the way that he It was his faithfulness. It was his integrity. It was the fact that he was so upstanding and so honest, and he was without reproach, and the fact that God's blessing was upon him, that people looked to him and they said, you know, this is a guy that we can trust. He's going to tell us the truth, because he is upstanding. He has integrity. So obviously we're going to listen to him. And so it seems that this is the kind of character that this young girl had in the story as well. Right. She was faithful in the way that she served her masters. She was obviously one of honesty and a person of integrity, so much so that when she could say, hey, there's a prophet that could heal you, they actually took her seriously. And so this also bounces off a lesson to some of us as well. Like, okay, we're in difficult circumstances. We're in less than ideal circumstances. Do we then throw up our hands and then just say, okay, well, what can I do? There's always something that we can do. That's right. We can be faithful in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. We can be true to our faith wherever we might be because of the choices of evil people in this world, we may find ourselves in situations that are less than ideal. And in fact, we might find ourselves in situations that are terrible. But even in the worst of situations, we still maintain control over three things. And this is what Viktor Frankl, writing out of the depths of the concentration camps In fact, writing out of Auschwitz, which was the worst of the concentration camps, a camp which accounted for 2.2 million deaths alone in the time that it was there. And he said, the last of the human freedoms is the ability to choose one's attitude, regardless of where you are. And so even in the worst of circumstances, And even in a place where we are being overrun by evil, we can still overcome evil with good. We can still make the choice that we are going to live out God's truth every day through our words, through our actions, and through our attitude. Chris, if you can keep one finger over there and quickly uh, churn over to the book of James and read verses 1 through 3.
0: My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that he may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing.
1: Okay, perfect. So I love it how 2,000 years, about 1,900 years, before Viktor Frankl made that discovery in the depths of the Nazi concentration camps, James made the same discovery in the middle of one of the most brutal persecutions that were there in the days of the early church. James says, first thing you do is choose your attitude. You count it joy, and then you choose how you're going to respond to it. You choose what you're going to say to it, and then you choose how you're going to act. If you do these three things, if you can choose your attitude and then choose your words and then choose your actions, regardless of the terrible circumstances that you find yourself in, you can still be a conduit and channel for good. Joseph, in the middle of terrible circumstances, held on to his integrity through his attitude, through his words, and through his actions. Yes. The little girl in Naaman's household held on to her integrity through her words, through her actions, and through her attitude. And we, in middle-of-life circumstances today, whatever we're thrown into, and I can say for most of us, we're probably not in situations anywhere as deadly as the ones that we're facing, Joseph or this girl over here. For sure. But even if we are, and even if we are in situations circumstances that are in the worst possible place, we can still choose to have the right attitude and then choose to say... The right words and choose to make the right actions. Because when we do that, we build up credibility and trust. And then when we say what God wants us to say, when God brings us to the point where, as this little girl, she stands before Naaman's wife and tells her about the prophet, or as um, Joseph standing before Pharaoh, at the moment when God brings you, your testimony is undeniable because of your faithfulness, because of your integrity. And so this girl's conduct and testimony speaks for itself. Yes. She convinces Naaman's wife. She convinces Naaman as well. And Naaman then goes and convinces the king. And then let's see what happens next.
0: And the king of Syria said, go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment.
1: Okay, wow. So he goes out with this huge delegation to the king of Israel. You have to remember that these two factions have been at war for a while. That's right. This is quite a shocking act to send your most important general to another king who you've been at war with, with all these gifts, hoping that he can do something on your behalf. Right. This is quite unheard of. Let's keep going.
0: And he brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, Now, when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so, when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel.
1: <laughs> so this is my favorite part of the story. I absolutely love this. This is this is comedy gold. <laughs> There's this huge delegation that has shown up. And this delegation is carrying tons of gold and all these famous, these fancy things. And they bring this letter and the king of Israel gets this letter and it says, I have sent Naaman, my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. (laughs) And the king freaks out. The king rips his clothes and starts bitterly weeping. He's like, this is it. I'm finished. We're all dead. (laughs) Am I God that I can... Kill people and I can bring them back to life. Am I God that can heal? He tells all the people around him. He's like, bear witness to this. They're trying to provoke us into another war. This is a setup for another war. Because if I send them away saying I can't do this, they're going to come and they're going to destroy us because I refuse to show them favor. And so he is over there talking to his council. And you have to imagine that he's probably in quite a lot of panic right now. Like, do we raise the army up again? Do we close set up these walls? Do we send him away? Do we make up a story? What do we do? Because this is a threat of death. This is a ploy that is set up and he is deliberately asking us to do something that we can't do. So that way he can pick a fight with us. And so this king is in absolute panic and he's in anguish. And according to uh, Jewish culture, you would rip your garments only in a sign of extreme grief and agony. It was a way of showing that you were anguished to the depths of your souls. In fact, you would tear it to expose your heart to show that the life was torn out of you. And now your bare heart was to be exposed before God because only God could get you out of this mess. And that is how much of grief was displayed through the renting of your garment. And so this guy tears his clothes and he's weeping and he's crying. He's like, what do we do? He calls his council together. He's like, we're going to go to war. What are we, how do we fix all this stuff? Right. So Elisha hears about it. And Elisha has the funniest response ever. Elisha's got like this... Perfect English dry humor. Okay. He's like, why did you waste a perfectly good set of clothes? Honestly, why did you waste a perfectly good set of clothes? Who is the prophet here? Who can heal these people? Who does this stuff? Me. Why are you getting so worked up about it? Why are you taking so much issue about it? This is not your problem. This is God's problem. This is not your issue. This is my issue. Send him to me. So that way he can know there is a prophet in Israel. And I think that also gives us a good lesson because sometimes we're faced with something and we get so worked up about it. How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to manage this? How am I going to take care of this? And a vast majority of the time, we only go to God as a last resort. That's right. Only once we have exhausted every single possibility, we go to God like, okay, God, you have to help me because otherwise there's no way out of this. But usually by that point, we're at our wits end, we are completely frazzled, we have probably burnt all the other options, and now it's God or nothing else. But Elisha's point here is, send him to me first. Go to God first. Why are you waiting till the last moment? This is not something that you are supposed to take care of, because it's not something that you can do. As Moses told the children of Israel at the border of the Red Sea, when the army of the Egyptians came up behind them, what did he say? Stand back and watch the Lord fight for you, because the battle is not yours, but his. Yes. Oh, what can we do? We can't fight. We're going to die here in the wilderness. What are we going to do? We can't go back to them. They'll kill us. If we go to the Red Sea, none of us can swim. We're all going to drown. And Moses is like, this is not your battle. The Lord will fight for you. The only thing you need to do is hold your peace and be still. This is not your battle because it's out of your hands, but it's not out of God's hands. There was no way the king of Israel could have healed Naaman, but that was not his job. That was God's job. Though what he should have done, and what Elisha advised him to do, is get the problem to God first. This battle is not yours. This battle belongs to the Lord. Why are you tearing up your clothes? Why are you calling your councils together and trying to figure out how to stave off a possible war that could come when you turn this down? Go to God, because he is the one who is going to work this out. When you encounter circumstances that are too big for you to handle, don't look at your bank account. Look at God. When you encounter circumstances that are too big for you to handle, don't look at your network. Look at God. Yes. When you encounter circumstances that are too big to handle, don't look at yourself. Look at God. That's not to say that God's not going to use your bank account or your network or you. But the most important thing for you to realize is that it's got to be him using you rather than you trying to figure your own way out of that. Because not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And that's the lesson the king learns in this moment when he's panicking and freaking out. Elisha said, wrong thing to do. Go to God first. Send him to me. I will take care of this. And so that's what the king does. The light is always on with nightlight. Let's read the next verses.
0: So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him saying, go and wash in Jordan seven times and thy flesh shall come again to thee and thou shalt be clean.
1: Okay, perfect. So Naaman goes to the house of Elisha. Big delegation, remember, lots of men because he's an important man. He's got a lot of people behind him. He's also got much gold and silver and all these different things that he's bringing. He comes to the door of Elisha's house, gets himself announced. Elisha doesn't even get up from his table. He sends his servant to go answer the door. And his servant goes and answers the door and says, this is what you need to do. Go to the Jordan River, dip yourself in seven times, and then you will be cleansed. Now, why did he send his servant out to do that? We'll find out about that in a minute, because this is something particular that God wanted to use in order to get the message through to Naaman. So let's read the next verse.
0: But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Obana and Farfa, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage.
1: So he gets up, and he gets up extremely angry. And he's like, how dare you? How dare you treat me with such disrespect? First of all, I thought that the prophet would come and talk to me. And I thought that he would stand in front of me, and he would wave his hands in the air and say... In the name of Yahweh, be cleansed, and I would be healed. It's like, that's what I literally thought I was to do. I thought he would come and wave his hands over me, and I would be cured. And he's not doing that. Instead, what does he want me to do? He wants me to go and dip myself in this filthy, dirty river. You know how dirty the Jordan is at this time of year? Do you know how muddy the banks are? And seriously, you really think that the only thing that's going to cure me is to take a bath? You don't think I've tried that before? You don't think I've tried taking bats before? <laughs> and okay, if you say that all I need to do to be cleansed is to go shower in a river, aren't there better rivers back at home? You really made me ride all the way into this place to come and meet you, to take all this time away from my job and the things that, I could, that I'm supposed to be doing, to come over here and only for you to tell me go bathe in a river? There's better rivers back at home. What is wrong with you? And he's so insulted. And he's so bothered by this that he turns around in a rage and marches back home. He's like, I can't handle this insult. This insult is too much. I can't deal with this. Now, why did God want him to go and dip in the Jordan River seven times? Why couldn't Elisha just go stand in front of him and wave his hands in the air and cure him? Is that to say that God's cure for leprosy is always to go take a bath in a river? No. Is that to say that Elisha couldn't have waved his hands and healed him? No. Why does God make him go and bathe in the Jordan River? Because God wants to reveal to him just how different he is from the rest of the gods of the Assyrians. That's right. This is not Moloch or Murdoch or Baal. This is Yahweh, and Yahweh is to be approached in a very, very different way. Yahweh is the God of power, all right, but you approach Him through humility. Yes. It is not your righteousness that brings about His miracles, but rather your need for Him. You don't approach Him in your goodness. You approach Him in your brokenness. Yes. It is not by works of righteousness that we have done but because of his mercy that he saved us. It's not because we deserved it. It's not because we earned it. It's not because we merited it. It's not because we brought all this wonderful stuff to to God and say, see, God, you have to save me because of my good works. God, you have to save me because look of all the big things that I'm bringing. God, give me life eternal because of all the things I've done for you. Jesus says, in that day, I will say to those, depart from me. I do not know you. Lord, we have done great things in your name. We have done this and that. I have no idea who you are. He is trying to approach God the way he would have approached the other gods. Here is my money. Here is my power. Here is my affluence. Here are my good deeds. Come through for me. God's like, I don't want that. If you want me to come through for you, I need you. And I need you to come to me in humility. I need you to come to me in your need. I need for you to come to me in your desperation. I don't need your wealth. I don't need your good works. I don't need all of that. I need you. Yes. And so humble yourself. Go take a dip in that river, even if it's the last thing you feel like doing, because then you'll know that that's all that I need. I don't need your power, your wealth, your prestige. I need your humility. And so that's why Elisha does not go up to him and doesn't wave his hand to heal him because then he never would have got the point. He never would have acknowledged the fact that Yahweh was God. That's right. He would have gone back home to the king and said, yep, I gave him money and he healed me. And so that's how we work with this God. Now, the next time we want to win a battle, what do we do? We give money to Yahweh and he gives us the battle. Now we go make sacrifices and we go win this. God is not a commodity to be used by that. The children of Israel tried that. Remember they tried to take the ark of the covenant out before their enemies because they're like, "Oh, if this is over there, the ark of the covenant is there, then then we will win the battle." God's like, "I'm not your trinket. I'm not something that can be woven around. I'm not something I'm not your little magical genie in a box that you do this and I'm going to intervene. I'm God." That's right. I'm the God of the universe. I am the creator. I am the one who sustains life. In me, everything is made. Nothing you can bring me is enough for me. But guess what? I don't need anything. I need you. I want you. But how do you approach me? In that humility, when you realize your need for me and you approach me, that is when you find me. You shall seek me and find me, the Bible says, when you search for me with all your heart. The Bible says that... The Lord is nigh to those who have a broken heart, and he is drawn to those who are humble and contrite in spirit. And so through what Naaman is being asked to do, he's not being asked to demonstrate his power and his wealth, because he's been doing this this whole time. He's being asked to demonstrate his humility, and it's too much for him to bear. And he turns around and walks straight out of there in a rage. What happens next? Can we read the next few verses, Chris?
0: And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather then when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. So
1: his servants come up to him and notice the high esteem and regard that they hold him in. They don't just say, My master. They say, My father. It's a very, very personal declaration that they make to him. Yes. Something incredible comes out of the mouth of these guys the first thing they say is hey if he had asked you to do something great wouldn't you have done it if he would have said go over to another land conquer that place and bring me the head of that king and then you'd be healed wouldn't you have done it if he said go into the jungle and kill a lion with your bare hands and bring me the heart and eat it wouldn't you have done that of course you would have done that why because it proves you're great It proves you're powerful. It proves you're strong. But it doesn't seem like that's what this God wants. This God doesn't want your pride. What he wants wants out of you is something very different. He wants something very different out of you. But you would have been willing to do anything else. You would have been willing to do something great. You would have been willing to do these other things. But notice the way he words this question is very interesting. What he almost says is this. He's like, are you really willing to give up? Being healed because you don't want to do something that's humbling? Are you really going to give up being changed and transformed because you don't want to humble yourself? Are you willing to give up the one thing that you've been seeking after, the one thing that you've not been able to find anywhere else because of your pride? If he had asked you to do anything else, you would have done it. But this is what he's asked of you. Why don't you do it? What is keeping you from doing the one thing that he's asked? What is standing in the way of that? You would have done anything else. What's keeping you from doing this? This convicts him. And so let's see what Naaman does as a result. Read the next verse.
0: Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, And he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused.
1: Okay, perfect. So look at what happens. He goes, and he takes a bath, and he's cleansed. Dips in the river seven times, and he gets out, and his leprosy disappears completely. And he goes back to the house of Elisha, and who meets him at the door? Not Elisha's servant. Elisha meets him this time. And now he's got the point. Right. And he tells Elisha, now I know that there is a God in Israel. Now I know that your God is powerful. Now I know that your God saves. Now please take something from me. Here, take my wealth, take this, take this, take that, take all of that. Elisha says no, because that's not what God was after in the first place. God never needed that. Right. Do you think God needs your wealth? Do you think God needs your possessions? He's got the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine. What does he need? He wanted you. And he wanted you In your humility he wanted you to surrender to him and in doing so that's what brought about your restoration and so that's all that he needs and now naaman goes away cleansed you're listening to an international edition of nightlight shining god's love light to the world we'll stop the story there but i want to throw it out with a challenge to each one of us. And I want to lay out three distinct challenges. The first challenge is in the difficulties that you're facing, in the difficult circumstances that are surrounding your life and the things that are getting you caught up and tossed around and that are just buffeting you from all sides. Are you really going to God to find help in your difficulties and find help in your struggles? Are you trying so hard to find the answers within you And instead, ignoring the only place where you can go to find hope, the only place where you can go to to find answers, the only place that you can go to to find the strength that you need. As Jesus told his disciples, you have not because you ask not, because you haven't come to me, because you haven't come to your heavenly father. How can you be helped? But then. Here's the second challenge. When we come to God, how are we approaching him? Are we approaching him as if it's a business negotiation? Well, God, I did this for you, and God, I did that for you, and God, I've been faithful with my word time, and I've been faithful with my praying and the other things that I've been doing, so shouldn't you take care of me? Shouldn't you be doing this? Shouldn't you be doing that? That's not how to approach him. He doesn't need your good works. He wants your humility. He wants your need. He wants you to come to him and to acknowledge the fact that you can't, but he can. That you cannot do it in your own strength and power, but it's not about your might or your power, but it's instead by his spirit. And that the way to approach him is through that humility, telling him, look, all I have is weakness, but your strength is made perfect in my weakness. I can't do this, Lord. I need you. Please help me. Come through for me. That's the second challenge. And the third and final challenge is is what Naaman's servant said to him. Are you really willing to give up what God wants to do in your life? Because you don't want to let go of your pride? Are you really willing to give up what God wants to do through you because you don't want to let go of your own way? Are you really willing to sacrifice the things that God has in store for you, which you have no idea what they are, but I promise you they are greater than everything you could have ever imagined because you don't want to submit yourself to Him? But God's way up is down. Humility is the way of exaltation. And as we says in the Bible, those who are exalted, he is able to abase. But those who are abased, he is able to exalt. And that is why Paul says that God takes the foolish things of this world to confound the wise and the base things of this world, to confound the things that are mighty and the things that are not, to bring to naught the things which are, so that no flesh may glory in his presence. So are you going to him? Are you humbling yourself in going to him? And are you willing to lay aside that pride, to approach him in that humility? Because when you do, then whatever he has is yours. And that is when you will receive help that God has been longing to give you. And for me, that's the message of the story of Naaman. Thanks for having me, Chris. Look forward to being back here again with you soon.
0: And thank you so much, David Karan. And if you're blessed by David's teachings, then I recommend that you subscribe to David's channel on patreon.com. Just search for Dive Deep with Dave. (laughs) that's all for me for now. Please help this channel to grow by liking, subscribing, and ringing the notification bell, and sharing our content with others. Until next time, may God bless and keep you, and make you a blessing. Bye for now.